Today's sermon text is Acts 3, verses 1 through 26. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. Yes, it is. Thank you, Tracy. Um, man, that's one of my favorite texts of Scripture. I love that. I love 
that a man was sitting outside of Gate Beautiful, as it was called, destitute, and he experiences the touch of the Holy Spirit in his life that is profound. Um, As Jeremy mentioned a moment ago, we're in the season of Lent, and this season uh, concludes on at Easter. And as, as also as he mentioned, um, it's a time of focused heart evaluation. Focused heart evaluation. Uh, we were praying with our some of our folks that like to pray before service, and one of the things that we mentioned was no one is above repentance. No one is beyond repentance. No one. No one. We all have idols in our hearts that we are aware of, and some we're not. And so we really need to look at ourselves, look really closely with the Holy Spirit's eyes and see what God might ask from us so we can experience times of refreshing. Um, Lent is not a time of new commitments like we're starting the new year. Um, It's a time of deeper immersion in the gospel. It's a time in which we learn to satisfy ourselves in Jesus. This should be the motive behind any fasting. Learning to satisfy ourselves in Jesus. And in our Western culture, in which we have so much whenever we want it, it's often appropriate to fast those things that we really, really enjoy so we can be, learn to satisfy ourselves in Jesus. I want to remind you of a challenge that I've been giving to you since before Christmas. And that's this. Be intentional about being a disciple. Be intentional about participating in this local church. Don't just listen to the sermon, forget about it, and come back next week, hoping that there's some resonance with the week before what you heard. I want to challenge you to listen, to take notes, to keep your mind engaged. And after you've done that in the following week, this this coming week, listen to the message again once, maybe twice. Reread your notes. And the text that we studied today, Acts chapter 3, study that text throughout the week. What would happen to your spiritual life if everything that you did at church, church services, and everything that you did outside of church services all were connected to one another? What kind of fruit would you yield, would you experience in your life? I think there would be a lot. I've had several of you come to me and say, hey, I've been doing that, Chris, and you're right. And I want to challenge the rest of you. Be intentional about your spiritual growth. Don't leave all the heavy lifting to me or our elders or some devotional that you're reading where somebody else has already studied God's word for you. Be intentional. Give yourself to God's word. Uh, Before I go into Acts Acts chapter 3 this morning, I want to go back to two verses In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I want to remind everybody what we talked about last week, that we are all called to belong to Jesus. We are called to belong to him. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says that we are called to holiness. Holiness. And when you hear the word holiness, don't listen to that through the lens of starchy, dead religion. That's not what we're talking about. When you hear the word holiness, I want you to think of the word wholeness. Wholeness. Any behavior that the scriptures prescribe for your life is for your good, not just to keep your nose clean. 
Anything the scriptures prescribe that you should do, that you should follow, is for your health. It's not just so that you can keep your nose clean. And when you are most healthy, you are most holy. And when you are most healthy, God is glorified in your life because you are called to belong to him. So he has the authority and he has the right to tell you what to do with your life. He has that authority. We must submit to him. And so I want to take us back for a moment to Romans 1, 16 and 17. I want to talk about these two verses for just a moment because we're spending most of the series of Lent in the book of Romans. I think you'll see by the end of today while we're spending a few minutes in the book of Acts today. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. I didn't have a chance to get here last week. I want to spend a few minutes here now. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we're going to tease that out a little bit more in the weeks to come, but I want to say a few things about this. Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That wasn't a bumper sticker, and that wasn't a t-shirt for Paul. Remember, Paul is writing to the city of Rome, particularly Christians who are living in Rome, who number probably no more than about a 100 and meet in various homes in the poorest parts of the city of Rome. They are considered atheists by the Romans around them because they only serve one God, not multiple gods, which is prominent in Greco-Roman culture. And so Paul says that no matter what people think of you, even though telling people to submit to the one Lord Jesus is illegal in the Roman Empire because Caesar was considered Lord, even though, even though the good news was pronounced, whenever a new Caesar would ascend to the throne, he would send out apostles, messengers to the corners of his realm, and they would announce the good news that a new Caesar, a new Lord, has ascended to the throne. Paul says, I am an apostle of the living God, and Jesus Christ is his son. He is the only Lord. He is the only true God. And I'm not ashamed of this, despite the fact that what I'm doing is considered politically subversive. I am not ashamed. I am living in the shadow of Caesar, in the power of evil, and I will continue to be faithful to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because people need that. That's the real good news. That's the real good news. So he says, I'm not ashamed, despite the fact that people who follow what I teach, the gospel, are going to be systemically ostracized, despite the fact that they are going to be mistreated and shamed Despite all that, I am not ashamed of the gospel. To plant the full weight of my life and my trust and my world in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. No matter how much of a cultural pariah he seems to be saying that I might become. Because of my affiliation with Jesus, I will be unmoved in my commitment to the gospel. And he's calling us to the same thing. Then he says of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel simply means the good news about Jesus for us. There is good news concerning Jesus that directly relates 
to every single one of us. Every single one of us, no matter where we are. There was a man named Thomas who was like, man, I just don't know that I can buy into this. And Jesus said, just touch my wounds. He will meet you where you are and help you to believe and to trust in him. He really will. He really will. But you've got to trust him. It's good news. It's the only good news. And then he says, here's the good, here's how the gospel works. It is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. He is saying here that what is required for us to be saved, contrary to the message that we have heard in our culture, is more than just repeating the sinner's prayer. We don't have power over our salvation. We don't get to decide when I'll give it all to Jesus. He says that salvation is fueled by God's power. And without God's power entering into our lives like an intervention, we cannot be saved. We can't be saved. It's not just a decision. It's not evaluating where you are morally and you think, you know, maybe Jesus would be a good lifestyle for me. Now, I'm not saying that God can't use that to bring you to him. He can't. Some of us have come to Christ with very sketchy motives, and Jesus took over, and I'm really thankful for that, really thankful for that. But salvation in and of itself is a power outside of us invading us and doing something to us that is beautiful. We go from having affections for things that are anti-God to having affections for God. Anybody that has come to Jesus will tell you that's their story. Anybody that has come to Jesus and really loves Jesus, no matter how immature or mature we think we might be in Christ, anybody who has come will say, yeah, I, I really didn't want that much to do with God. Unless you were like raised in the church and you had a childlike faith, which is beautiful. But even then, God gave me affections for him. I see all these people around me who think Jesus is a joke, who think Jesus is a white man's religion, who think Jesus is terribly outmoded and irrelevant for the sophistication of society's problems today. And I look at Jesus and I see the answer of the ages. I see someone who is relevant to every fracture in my life, Jesus. Only the gospel can make you believe that. Only the gospel can make you believe that. And it is for everyone who believes. Now, why does he say everyone who believes? Because the Jews had been beaten down and dominated for so many centuries that they lost touch with what God originally said to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. If you read Genesis chapters 1 through 11, what you see really quickly is humanity flushing itself down the toilet. And in Genesis chapter 12, God intervenes into this obscure peasant's life, this man named Abraham. And he gives him a promise. A man who couldn't have kids. A man who was beyond, he and his wife, beyond the years of childbearing. And God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to give you a supernatural family. And your supernatural family is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The Jews lost hold of that. They were beaten down so much 
and ostracized and dominated and killed and enslaved and exiled so much that they lost touch with their mission and their faith became theirs. And this is why throughout the New Testament, you see over and over and over again, yes, the gospel comes to the Jew first, but so that it can go to the Greeks. And remember what I said last week. In the Jewish mind, there were two racial groups, the Jews and everybody else, known as the Greeks or the Gentiles. It was the Jews and everybody else. And Paul says, yep, the gospel goes to the Jews. Jesus came to Israel first, but so that Israel could be restored to its mission, its Abrahamic promise to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. I'm here to do that. And that's why when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, he sent his apostles to the ends of the earth. Preach my gospel, make disciples, train people to obey me, baptize them. I will be with you until the, until the end of time. This is the story of scripture, my friends. This is the story that the Israelites found themselves in. And this is the story that we find ourselves in. 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, we are in this same story. We're in this same struggle. Do we see ourselves as being a part of it? Because when Paul talks about salvation, he's talking more than just you getting your life fixed. That's not what he means when he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that's why I want to move to Acts chapter 3 and blow this out just a little bit, unpack this just a little bit. Do you get fixed when you come to Christ? Yes. And by fixed, I mean like repaired, not what we do to our animals. Okay, so um, let's move to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Do you like that? All right. So that was off script. That was just, yeah. Um, so in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Peter and John, the previous chapter, anybody know what happens in Acts chapter 2? Something really profound. History changing. Day of Pentecost, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came. He came in a way, what? Heads caught on fire, that's right, heads caught on fire. The Holy Spirit came in a way that he had never come before. Prior to the day of Pentecost, yes, he would come upon people, but that was the exception, not the rule. We learned in Joel, when Robert taught that a couple of weeks ago, that there was a prophecy in Joel given that every single person who follows God would experience the possession of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens in Acts 2. We go from believing with head knowledge and being born into the right race, the Jews, to being a part of God's family because the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and he's the intervening force. He's the power that causes us to believe the gospel. Nobody can come to Christ without that power entering into you. No one can. So the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples they speak in foreign languages, and all of these people gathered around begin to hear their foreign languages spoken by people that you would assume in that era and in that culture are uneducated. And it's given away by their Gentile drawl. And they hear these people speaking the glory of God in their languages from around the whole Roman Empire, and it blows their minds, and thousands come to Jesus. It's incredible. The whole tongues of fire thing happens. Uh, a rushing wind blows through the, through the room that they're in. It was incredibly supernatural. 
incredible. And then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. They're on their way to the temple, and they're going to worship there. They're going to worship there. I think they're still trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing means, how it melds with Judaism. What does that look like? But even beyond that, maybe they're going to the temple just simply to be witnesses for Jesus and convince people, these Jews who are worshiping Yahweh, that he has made himself known to us in person, and Yahweh is Jesus. Regardless of what their motives are, they're going there on a mission from God, and there is this gate that they enter in called the beautiful gate or gate beautiful. And paradoxically, sitting at the foot of gate beautiful is this destitute, lame beggar who's been there for decades, begging, begging. He has nothing. Peter and John are walking in. He asks them, and they said, silver and gold, we don't have. But what we do have is this, in the name of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, who has authority over all sickness and disease, who has authority over all addictions and sin, who has authority over every spinning molecule in the cosmos. By the authority of Jesus, we command you to get up and they grab him by the hand and they pull him up. And what something ironic and beautiful happens. They walk into the temple, which is synonymous with the presence of God, and it's empty. It's full of worshipers, but the presence of God doesn't appear there. You see, the presence of God came before in a rugged little room where the disciples were gathered. They didn't have golden lampstands and candelabras and brazen altars. They didn't have any of that stuff. The Holy Spirit came to a concrete room made of rubble and rock and showed up in a powerful way. And now the disciples are the temple of God. And I don't mean just the apostles and the big dogs. I'm talking about everybody who follows Jesus. We are walking, talking temples of the Holy Spirit because now the Holy Spirit loves to possess people, not just big rooms, big fancy rooms. And so Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, touch this man and he is brought back to life, if you can imagine it. And what happens next is they're walking into the temple and this man is worshiping God and he's praising God. He's probably the only one who's really, really, really excited. He got the Holy Ghost that day. And everybody else is looking at him and this is when Peter and John, Peter preaches that sermon. We didn't do this to him. Jesus did this to him. This same Jesus that you murdered did this to him. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You can hear that echo. Behind the scenes. These same people who murdered their master took a big risk. They held them accountable. They pointed their finger at him, said, You're guilty. You murdered our Savior. This is incredible what's going on here. The temple filled with lifeless worshipers, and Peter and John, anointed by the Holy Ghost. And they raise this man up. And this supplies the context for Peter's sermon that he preaches. And I'm not going to go through every detail of this sermon, but I do want to hit a couple of things. Um, First, I want to deal with a misconception that Jesus was plan B. Jesus has never been plan B. It was always intended that the new creation, the creation itself, 
would be inhabited by people who loved and communed with Jesus Christ, the most beautiful person, the one true living God. It was always intended. Yeah, Israel made some mistakes. They weren't faithful. They didn't steward the word of God well. But Jesus was not plan B. Jesus has always been plan A. Every one of us needs Jesus. Moses needed Jesus. Abraham needed Jesus. Adam and Eve needed Jesus. And you need Jesus. Every one of us needs him. Every one of us. He's not plan B. He's plan A. There is total continuity between the patriarchs of the old covenant and Jesus. Now, to you, most of you are probably Gentiles, I'm betting. I don't think I'm wrong to, you know, bet that. Um, I would bet a million dollars that most people in this room are Gentiles. And so when Peter is appealing to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that might sound like just sort of like biblical rhetoric, some, you know, Christianese maybe. But it's more than that. These people who killed Jesus thought they were killing Jesus to honor the legacy of the word of God that was carried by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're saying, no, Jesus is a continuation of those men. There is total continuity. There is total consistency. And this is why he says Samuel prophesied of him. Samuel is the guy who anointed David as king of Israel. And then it was later prophesied that David's throne would have no end. And we see the fulfillment of that in Scripture. When Jesus comes, born of the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. And uh, amazingly, of David's own family legacy, his lineage. Jesus, Jesus is the guarantee that David's throne will last forever. Because Jesus is on that throne. Jesus is there. Then you got Moses. Moses, and it says in verse 18, Peter's preaching, and he he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 18, and he says these words, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses is saying that. Why did Moses say a prophet like me? Now, y'all lean into this, okay? You need to know this stuff. Next time you're reading Isaiah 53 or, or something like that, and you're wondering, what in the world does all this mean? Listen to these details. I want you to grow and learn these things. Moses was uniquely chosen and one of the most unique prophets of the Old Testament. Why? Because when God saved Israel from Egypt, he appointed Moses and he said, Moses, you are going to be like God to Israel and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So Aaron is the high priest. He's like the pastor of of Israel. And Moses is serving as like God. He's the only one who can hear from God. God speaks to him, and Moses speaks to the people. He was a mediator between God and sinful, broken Israel, even though he was sinful and broken too. And he says, when he said that God will raise up another person, another another prophet just like me, he's saying down the road, somebody's going to come along who is better and more satisfying and more effective than me. Now, Moses had no idea what he was saying back then. But we know what he said now. We we see the fulfillment of this. Jesus came. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus stands between us and God. And those of us who put our faith in Jesus experience the righteousness of Jesus. Now, this is really, really big. And I want to do an illustration that I've done. I do about every five years. Kenny and Jason, would you come here really quick? Kenny and Jason, come on. Um, Take your shirts off. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, so, 
So I'm going to pretend that Kenny is God, okay? I know it's a stretch, but we're going to pretend that Kenny is God. And Jason, Jason, this with his wonderful grizzly beard here, grizzly is the wrong word, but good, wonderful beard, uh, rugged beard, he's going to be Jesus. He's going to be Jesus, all right? That's pretty awesome. Awesome. I am going to be, very realistically, a broken sinner, far from God, okay? So, I get in the middle. Stand where I tell you to, Jesus. Uh, so, um, so, I'm separated from God. I'm separated from God because of my sin. I'm separated from God. God is a holy God. And because God is holy, he won't put up with our junk. He just won't. He can't. Anybody who wants to say that God is a loving God, and what that means is that God is okay with my behavior, doesn't understand what love is. Anybody who's married knows what love is. It means confrontation. It means long talks. It means staying up late at night sometimes, like this on your pillow, and your wife or your husband's there, and you're talking things out. That's what love does. Love works out bad stuff. God does that too. And so because God loves us, he knew that I couldn't save myself, so he sent his son Jesus to live my life for me. He's living my life for me 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, God raised him up. That was God's way of saying everything Jesus has said, you can take to the bank. He's not just some other prophet starting a new cultic religion. He is legit. God validated him, vindicated him, the scripture says, by raising him from the dead. And so here's how Jesus' life 2,000 years ago affects me now in Memphis, Tennessee. Because God is omnipresent. That means the Holy Spirit is everywhere, right? Right? This is why Jesus ascended, because Jesus took on our human flesh for all eternity. And he loves us so much, he knew there wasn't enough of his human flesh to go around So he ascended to the right hand of God. He somehow disappeared into the glory of God. I'm not a metaphysicist, so I can't explain that. And while he is at the right hand of God, that's how the Bible says it, he sends the Spirit to us. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. And when he sent the Spirit to us, the Spirit comes into the life of everyone who believes. Everyone. How does he come into the life of everyone who believes? I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I really believe in Jesus. Everything I've heard about Jesus is compelling to me. Everything I know about Jesus, I believe to be right. My heart has been smitten by Jesus. And because I believe in Jesus, who is God, now when God looks at me, he doesn't see sinful Chris. He sees righteous Jesus. This is what the scriptures mean when it says that Jesus is our intercessor or our mediator. He stands between God the Father and his wrath and us. And God loved us so much that instead of just punishing us, which he will do to all unbelievers at the end of the age, he came and suffered the tidal wave of his own wrath so that we wouldn't have to. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. And if we put our faith in Jesus, meaning I believe in him as a person, I believe in him as God, I follow his teachings, I will become his student. If we do that, that's believing obedience. 
Remember last week. That means that when God looks at me, God, come here, Kenny, God like takes Jesus' righteousness and applies it to my life. He gives it to me. How does he do that? Through the Holy Spirit, who is everywhere. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. Even on my worst day, even when I'm, when I'm really messing up, even when I've relapsed, he still sees Jesus. Which is why the, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, to Jewish Christians who are flirting with going back to Judaism and abandoning Jesus, he's saying, come boldly to the throne of grace where you can receive mercy and grace for help in times of need. Why would he say that that way? Come boldly. We Gentiles were like, cool. What's up, God? How's it going? You know, I mean, we, we were like, we, we lack reverence in our love for Jesus. I think we come by it honestly because we're just goofy. But to the Jews, they knew the presence of God meant certain death. If you didn't go through specific ritual washings and only one person per year could go into the presence of God, the high priest. And they tied a rope around his leg and he, if he was struck down dead, they were able to yank him out. And so in that context, the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly before God. The reason I can come boldly is because Jesus is my mediator. Jesus stands between me and God. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Yahweh. Appreciate you guys. Um, So this is what's happening here. Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was always plan A. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our everything. What you don't need is a bigger tax return this year. You need Jesus. What you don't need is to get married. You need Jesus. What you don't need is for racial equality to happen. You need Jesus. All those things are good. We should pray for those things and fight for those things, but fight fair and fight in love. What you need more than anything is Jesus. You don't need your spouse to straighten himself out. You need Jesus to love him the way Jesus loves him. We all need Jesus. For every sliver of brokenness in your life, Jesus fills that to overflowing if we just follow him. If we just follow him. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And so he says about Abraham, he reminds these people that he's preaching to, Acts chapter 3, that Abraham was given a commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he says this, these interesting words in Acts, we're coming in for a landing. Acts 3, 25 and 26, check this out. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. It's a metaphorical way of saying, you're an Israelite. You're a Jew. This is your family. These are your people. This is who you are. And he says about Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now that word has been hijacked by Christian television. What does that really mean? What does that mean to be blessed? Look at verse 26. 
God having raised up his servant. Who is his servant? Jesus sent him to you first. To who first? The Jews. Why? To bless you. Oh, glory to God, I got a new car. Is that what he's doing? Is that what's going on here? Just read the text. I'm not, I'm not going to break out any like, you know, Greek, you know, antics here. I mean, it, just read what it says. He sent him to you first, the Jews. Why? To bless you. What does it mean to bless you? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 that the spirit of holiness raised Jesus from the dead. And this is why in Romans chapter 1 it says that we are called to belong to Jesus. We are called to be saints of Jesus. We're called to belong to Jesus in such a way that he interjects himself into our lives, changes our hearts, and puts us on a path where we let go of our old affections and former lusts and we lay hold of Jesus because he is all we need. As just a quick, hopefully a quick uh, uh, rabbit trail here. I'm not saying that nothing else is beautiful and fun and awesome because there are things in this world that God has given us. I'm looking forward to a family dinner today. I'm going to love that. It's going to be great. See my nieces and nephews and my family. We're going to eat really good food and drink good drink, and it's going to be a good day. Hopefully, I'll take a really great nap this afternoon. I'm getting ready for two services down the road. I'm not a napper on Sundays. That's a beautiful gift from God, sleep. Tonight, we're going to have family time, man. We're going to hang out. After I'm going to have, Micah wants me to build him a Batman Lego train. I'm like, what? Oh, And the problem with our Legos is we have 10,000 of them and they're all mixed up. So it takes me 10 hours to find the pieces and 30 minutes to build it. So I'll power through that maybe this evening. And then I'll grab my Kindle and I'll read. And it'll be good. Those are good things. But those aren't ultimate. Those aren't ultimate. We need Jesus. We need him. We need him. And so Peter turns to these people and he says some really hard stuff to them. Man, stuff that most churches would tell preachers, hey, we don't want to hear this stuff. Tone that down, man. A lot of preachers would lose their job if they talk talk this way to their people. He says, but you, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, and he just goes, he just gives a withering condemnation to these people. A withering condemnation. But then he says something beautiful. He says, I know you were ignorant in verse 17. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. And then he says in verse 18 and 19 and 20. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, particularly Isaiah. He thus fulfilled. Christ fulfilled that. Isaiah paints this picture of the beautiful suffering servant of God. 
who's borne our griefs and our sorrows. And he says, repent, therefore, and turn back. What does it mean to repent again? By turning from our wickedness. God has blessed us by sending the Spirit into our life to give us a heart, a desire to turn from our wickedness. That's what the Spirit does inside of us. He gives us affections for things that are truly beautiful and whole. He gives us affections for Jesus because Jesus is enough. And he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. May come from the presence of the Lord. And I love the way he ends that text. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Lost my place. (laughs) Yeah. And he may send you the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, keep on going, whom heaven must receive. You know what that literally means? That Jesus is craving to come back right now in it as, the, as though heaven is holding his arms and restraining him from coming back right now. That's what that literally means. Whom heaven must receive until the, uh, until the time for restoring all the things about God. I can't even read this, it's so wide. Uh, all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So we have times of refreshing that will last until when? You're all whispering. Come on, have faith in yourself. Say it out loud. Until Jesus returns and does what? Restores all things. The new creation. The new world. Where we will have literal bodies and we will walk and talk with one another and bask in the glory of God's face. This is what will come. So the times of refreshing are what? They are to quench our thirst to give us the hope and the endurance to carry on until the end. What does that imply? That the pain of this world isn't just going to go away. This implies that some of the things that hurt you, God will lift off of you. And some of the things that hurt you, he won't. There is a time in the future when Jesus will return and all sickness and suffering will go away. Now, it's a partial experience of that grace and that power. I don't know why. But he whets our appetite. He gives us exactly what we need so we can progress and advance through this life because it's hard to live in this world. It's hard to live in this world. And so, I want to close with a few points. When we talk about salvation, this is what we're talking about. This is what salvation means. Six points. I'm not going to preach them. I'm just going to say them. You might want to write them down because I think they're good. The first one is this. Here's what salvation means. When Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, okay, 
First, salvation first and foremost is the ancient story of God making all things new. It's not first, your life getting better. It is first and foremost the ancient story of God making all things new. So the things that we hate about this world, God hates too. He hates all that stuff. He hates political corruption. He hates racial bigotry. He hates all that stuff. He hates terrorism. He hates it that we have to go to bed with a sense and fight anxiety because we're afraid that, you know, there might be crime in our neighborhoods. He's a, he's, he, he, all that stuff makes him mad too. It makes him mad and angry. That a book of Psalm, what, Psalm, where is that again? Psalm, what Psalm where God, is, God literally experiences wrath every day. Psalm 5.5, 5, somewhere in there. It's one of the Psalms. There's 150, see if you can find it. But uh, one of the Psalms, uh, he quoted it the other day and I, I forgot about that. But literally God experiences wrath every day. Why? Because God just is mean? No. Because God hates all the stuff we hate. He hates all that stuff, all the injustice, all the unrighteousness. He hates it all. He hates it all. Salvation first and foremost is the ancient story of God making all things new. Here's what it is second. The making of all things new is powered by the resurrection of Jesus. In the same way that God resurrected Jesus from the dead, he will make this world new. The resurrection is the power of the new creation. Here's a third one. If I run too fast, you can email me. I'll be happy to send you my notes. Also, on our app, we always put my sermon outline on our app. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but you can always look at my notes that I preach from. Number three, the making of all things new begins with those who believe in Jesus. We are the first fruits of the new creation. We who follow Jesus are proof that this whole world will be fixed. People who follow Jesus. People who have experienced the power of God entering into our lives. We are proof of that. We are the first fruits of that. Does that make sense? I'm good? Okay. I'm seeing a lot of like strange eyes looking at me here. Okay. Maybe it's getting close to noon. I don't know. But I was in a movie for two hours the other night um, that I deeply regret. It was terrible. So, okay. Um, the making of all things new begins with those who believe in Jesus. Number four, what is belief? Belief is when we hear the gospel and are convinced of its truth. That doesn't mean we never have doubts, we never struggle at times. It doesn't mean that. But God gives us the faith to really believe. Belief is when we hear the gospel and are convinced of its truth. We've got two more. Y'all okay? Y'all writing feverishly. All right, five. Those who are convinced of the gospel's truth respond in obedience. You respond in obedience. The teachings of Jesus are like, okay, whew, this is what life looks like with Jesus. So we go from saying stuff like, you know, the Bible says turn the other cheek, but man, it can't, you know, contextually, he probably meant like really, really, really small things, not big things. 
for, like, forgive your enemies? Like, but what if they do something really bad to you? Surely Jesus couldn't mean that. So what we do is we gradually soften Jesus' teachings. And so many evangelicals in Western culture have spent a lifetime softening Jesus' teachings so much that we don't look anything like Jesus. Take the edge off. It's too extreme, too radical, idealistic. Those who are convinced of the gospel's truth respond in obedience. It's hard. We're going to fail a lot. But what's awesome is we're in grace. And we always have his forgiveness. And we always have his strength to stand up and carry on. And then last... Those who are saved can be refreshed by the presence of God now and will one day see him face to face for all eternity in the new creation. I know we think we need something. I really need a raise. I really need X, Y, or Z. You fill in the blank. And those, those are legitimate needs. Some of us need a raise. It'd be nice. It'd really help. <laughs> but you don't want that raise if you don't need Jesus anymore. And I hope Jesus doesn't give you that raise. If it means that you won't need Jesus anymore. I hope Jesus doesn't bless you in the way we mean it, unbiblically, if if it means that we won't need Jesus anymore. What we need more than anything is Jesus. I don't speak as somebody who's mastered this. I'm still learning this. I will be learning this truth for the rest of my life. There are days that I don't think I need Jesus. I need something else. And so I'm learning to live in repentance. I'm learning to constantly push my heart back to Jesus, to hand him my idols and to take him by the hand and walk that perilous journey of trusting him. And yet, in that perilous journey, experiencing times of refreshing that I can only get from the presence of the Lord.